All right, let's take our Bibles and return to the book of John. John chapter 11. As I mentioned earlier, it was my intention to begin a series on the end of Matthew, the Great Commission. But as I have been digging into that, there are some technicalities that... If they're unanswerable, I at least need to have the full persuasion they're unanswerable. So I'm still working through those technicalities. Part of it has to deal with the chronology of when Matthew 28 occurred in those 40 days in which our Lord showed with many infallible proofs, Acts chapter 1 says, that He was alive. And so, if you'd be praying for that, it looks like, if the Lord be willing, we'll be starting that at the 1st of November. John chapter 11, and we'll be reading the first six verses of this chapter. <clears throat> now, a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. We're coming off of a great event John chapter 9 and John chapter 10, in which our Lord heals a blind man, a man who has been blind since what? Since birth. No one in the Scripture had ever done this. Our Lord actually created sight for this man. It was an amazing thing. And the man at the end, as we looked at, was being drawn to what we would say a saving faith. And he falls down at this man, Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is the Son of God, and he worships him. And Jesus accepts this worship. Now you can imagine this going on to the disdain of the religious. Not only was this man doing works that no other man could do, and it was not sporadic, it was habitual, it was persistent, it was daily Jesus was doing these things. But he had declared that he he himself was God. He had been declaring this since the early days of his ministry. In John chapter 5, he says, My Father is working and I am working at the very same moment. 
And the Jews understood that when he was saying that, that he was declaring that he was God in human flesh. Amazing. Contrary to several cults today, Jesus did say that he was God, and he was saying it repeatedly. He was saying it in his teaching, he was saying it in his works. And so in John chapter 10, the Lord answers the disdain of the Pharisees by declaring that he was the good shepherd. He was not a hireling. You cannot get into his sheepfold by climbing over the wall as the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Herodians were seeking to do. But you had to come in by the door. And the door is Christ. It is the shepherd himself. He will go on and say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am life embodied. I am truth embodied. I am the way embodied. No man comes to the Father except by me. These were amazing statements. I think we lose the actual magnificence of these statements and how wild they were for a human being to make this claim. And yet, he's making this claim because it is what? It is true. He is these things, and He is the way, and He is the life. John had picked out these events to write in his book so that we might believe. John 20, verse 31. He's going to repeat it even here in this chapter, John chapter 11, if you look down at verse 40. He says to Martha, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? You would see this as evidence that I am the Son of God in your faith. Martha did believe, did she not? That her faith would be strengthened and settled and confirmed in this fact. He's going to say it again in verse 42 when he lifts his eyes up and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Verse 42, And I knew that you always hear me. But the reason why I verbalize this is because of the people which are standing by. I want them to believe that you have sent me. And folks, the reason why God the Father has written down these things in a book is so that we might believe. Every word of God, its intention for human beings is that we would be fully persuaded of them. Not that we would be agreeable with them. Being agreeable with them is totally different from believing. Not that we would say to ourselves, well, of course, he's God, of course he can do this. No, That's not believing. That's sidestepping the issue. 
Do these words come to us with such force, even as believing people, that we, those words, enter into our heart and have place in us, move us from a place of one stage of maturity of glory to another? This is the fight for believing people. Because if these things are not happening, then we're missing the intention of the Scripture. And folks, it would be a sad thing to be a believer and to miss this intention day after day and week after week and stand before Him with very little conformity into His image. And it would be just a a travesty for you to grow up and attend a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church and for this not to happen and for you to die in your sins. Can it happen? Folks, it is interesting at the end of John chapter 10 that when it comes to being in Jerusalem, when it comes to dealing with the most religious city on the face of the earth, even today, that the conclusion of this great thing in which Jesus declares to them that He is God in the healing of this blind man, it says in verse 39 of John 10, therefore they those in Jerusalem, those that were there, sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hands. What were they seeking to do? To kill him. These were people who could quote the Bible. They'd given their whole life to this. But when Jesus comes and presses upon them, he just presses upon him, His claims, they react with more hardness. And when He presses the claim, and He presses the claim, they react not only with more hardness, they react with anger. And anger feeds into what? Hate, and hate feeds into murder. that would be one evidence that you are religious but not believing. I remember years ago, even here in this congregation, not maybe this particular people who are here today, but I remember preaching and a lady coming to me and saying, why do you keep preaching to us as if we're lost? Well, do lost people attend church? Yes. But there was a reaction to this. Folks, the same preaching that comes to lost people is the same preaching that delights saved people. We don't ever get tired of the gospel. 
We don't ever say to ourselves, well, I'm just coming and it's just an evangelistic meeting and all He's going to do is just preach the Gospel. What kind of attitude is that? Folks, it's all the Gospel. Whether you're talking justification, sanctification, or glorification, it's all the what? It's all the good news. And this physical attack against the Lord that is taken in the city of Jerusalem in which He has to escape out of their hand, if you note again at the end of chapter 10, He goes away again. Now He's beyond Jordan. Where's He at? He's at the place where John first baptized, which this book tells us was Bethabarba. He's there, and when He's there, verse 42, what happens there? Many believed on Him. What a stark contrast, isn't it? Between the most religious city in the world and another city and town which is less religious. Or we could say this, just country people. Folks, it is amazing. And I want to assert before you and to any hearer that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the Son of God. And God hath made Him both Lord and Christ. Hallelujah. Now this brings us to John chapter 11. in which this chapter really is the mountaintop. It's about as high as we can go pre-resurrection. The highest that we can go is the resurrection. But the highest that we could go for any man prior to his death, burial, and his own personal resurrection is this event right here. And he introduces another event as he does in this book with the word now. So there is a separation between John 10 and John 11 of days and weeks. To the best of our ability, we are somewhere around eight weeks from his entering into Jerusalem in the Passion Week. Could be less than that, could be a little bit more than that. But what makes this chapter such a mountaintop apex experience is that Jesus had raised other people from the dead. In fact, when John's messengers come to him before John himself was beheaded and John himself was wrestling with this fact about whether Jesus was the Messiah or not, his messengers come to him and he says, are you the one to come or is there another? And Jesus says, now you go tell John that the sick are healed, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and then he says, and the dead 
are raised up. Now, he could have been referring to spiritually dead people being raised up. But more than likely, he's referring to what? Literal dead people being raised from the dead. Which means that he probably did it more frequently than the three times that we have in our books of the gospel. Now, I want you to go back to the book of Luke, chapter 7. And we'll see the first time that he does this. Luke chapter 7 and verse 11. And it came to pass on the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and much people. So you can imagine the crowds and the multitudes that are following him. Verse 12. Now when he came near to the gate of the city, behold there was a dead man carried out. So this man was on the way to a graveside what? He was on the way to a graveside funeral or burial. He was being carried out, and the significance about this dead man is that he was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, so he was the breadwinner, as it were. He was the one responsible of taking care of the home, and much people of the city was with her. So you have one crowd coming this way and another crowd exiting the city this way, and eventually the crowds what? The crowds come together, and you have a vast multitude of people there. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her, and said unto her, Do not weep. So he goes right up. I don't know exactly what place she was in with the casket or the beer that was coming out of that gate. But let's say she was in the front of it. She might have been following it. But in any case, Jesus just comes right up unto her because he had compassion. And he tells her, Don't weep. and he touches the bier, and they that bore him stood still. And he addresses that casket, that corpse, and he says, Young man, I say unto you, Arise. Could you imagine any mere human doing this? Could you imagine me at the next funeral walking up to the open casket, looking at the casket, and speaking a word, arise? Folks, nobody probably would have been really paying attention, but when I said, I would have said arise, and then the dead got up, people would be what? Stunned. And there would be some people there who would give attention to the message. And there would be others who would be sitting there saying this, how did he do that? 
That question, how did he do that, can be an (coughs) unbelieving response. But the dead man, verse 25, verse 15, the dead sat up, and how do we know that he's alive? (coughs) He spoke. What do you think he said? Did he say, thank you? (laughs) Did he say, hi, mother? We don't know what he said, right? But he spoke. And Jesus delivered him to his mother, verse 16, and there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us and that God had visited his people. Folks, he wasn't a prophet, and he wasn't just another man. He was Emmanuel. God what? God with us. Amazing. The other instance is also in the book of Luke in chapter 8. And it kind of makes sense that Luke would be impressed with this because Luke was a he was a physician, was he not? So here you have a physician who is absolutely declaring that this was miraculous. Luke chapter 8. Verse 41, And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come unto his house, for he had one only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she lay a-dying. And as he went, the people thronged about him. Of course, you know he was interrupted in this. But go down to verse 49. And while he yet spake, there came one from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. And when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. Now folks, he's not saying to them, Believe that I can raise the dead. He's saying, Believe who? Me. If He's the Son of God, if He's God in human flesh, does God have the ability to raise the dead? Yes, that's what He's saying. Just believe that I am who I say that I am. And when He came into the house, He permitted no man to go in, save Peter and James and John and the father and the mother of the maiden. So there's five people plus Him. And they all wept and bewailed her, but He said, Don't weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. Verse 53. And they laughed Him to scorn. Why did they laugh Him to scorn? They knew she was what? They knew she was dead. And you would too. And he put them all out, verse 54, and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose immediately. And he commanded to give her meat, 
And her parents were astonished, and he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. Isn't that a, how are you going to hide that? In other words, folks, Jesus wanted them to see the miracle first. So you have a young boy who's raised, and you have a young girl that's raised. No discrimination with gender, right? And then you have John 11. This raising up of Lazarus from the dead took place at a home of two ladies, Martha and Mary. Mary, as you would read in John 12, we know therefore that John's not necessarily written chronologically, but it was Mary who had anointed the Lord's head and feet. She was the one in Matthew 26 that wiped his feet with her hair in preparation for his death. And Jesus had declared that anywhere that the Gospels preached that this deed of Mary would be proclaimed associated with this. You have Martha, who is the older sister, and you recall that it was Martha that always was cumbered about with much activity, and it was Mary who was sitting at his what? At his feet. She had chosen the best thing. And perhaps what our Lord was doing here, among other things, was preparing the nation of Israel for His own resurrection. Folks, if Jesus Christ is Lord over death, and is He, then why would we ever think it incredible that He could be raised from the dead? He is telling everyone He is Lord over death. And not only that, but this raising of Lazarus would give further proof that He was the promised Messiah. It was His works that declared that He is who He proclaimed He is. And ten times in the book of John, it is written that He did certain works in order for them to believe what He said. Now there are three major actors in this chapter. There is Lazarus, who's a very passive actor, would you say? (laughs) Kind of reminded me, we had mentioned on Wednesday about Kristen, what's her last name now? Childs. Childs, who used to be Kristen Hall, and her dad came to my former ministry to help us have an evangelistic outreach. And I had written up, I'd given out maps, and I wasn't thinking, I just said, here, you do this area, and he went out to this area, and the area happened to be a cemetery. (laughs) And when he came back, he said, well, we didn't have much success there. It was just dead. (laughs) That's the way Lazarus is. He's a passive actor in this. There's Martha. We don't know much about Lazarus other than it says the Lord loved him. There's Martha. 
And she does believe and she does have a great faith. She actually says in this chapter, Lord, if you would have been here, he would not have, he would not have died. She actually believed that he is who he is. She actually says to him, I believe that you're the promised one, the son of God. She believed that, and having believed that, she believed that he could heal Lazarus, but if only he was, he was there. And Mary, of course, had demonstrated her meekness because when our Lord calls for her through Martha, she didn't hesitate at all. She immediately gets up and goes. She didn't say she was too busy. She didn't say, I'm too grieved. She immediately gets up and goes to him. And of course, she had anointed him. Now what the Holy Spirit is wanting us to note in these verses is a very simple truth. And that is Jesus' love. You'll note in verse 2, excuse me, verse 3, that the messengers come to Jesus and say unto Him, Lord, behold, He whom you love is what? Is sick. It's repeated again in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and loved Mary and He did love Lazarus. He did love them. And it's repeated again in verse 36 when Jesus weeps and the Jews declare, Behold, how He what? How He loved Him. They saw His love by His tears his distress, and his groaning. So folks, what we have to understand is Jesus did what? He did love them. Now why is this so critical? Because when we have bodily infirmity, Our bodily infirmity can tell us, can actually preach at us. It can actually begin to seek to teach us that God doesn't love me. You think so? If you don't think so, then you haven't been sick enough. I don't mean in frequency, I mean in degree. Brethren, it's very important for us to understand that sickness is not an indication that you're not right with God. Do we hear that? 
I'm afraid that there are certain people that they have bodily ailments or weaknesses or sicknesses, and sometimes Christians will look at them and say unto them, well, they must not be right with God or this wouldn't be happening to them. I hope you have never said that. But we do. Folks, when Jesus encountered the blind man in John chapter 9, the disciples asked him, is this because he sinned? And the answer was what? No. And they asked, is it because his parents sinned? And the answer to that was what? No. Why was this man blind? So that the glory of God might be made manifest. What does he want to show in our illness? His glory. Who he is. He may show himself to you in healing you. He may show His glory to you by giving you the strength to endure it. But He wants to show to you Himself. Our sicknesses are not a sign that you're not loved of Christ. How do I know that this is a real problem? John 8, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, did you hear death? Neither death nor life could separate us from the love of Christ, neither tribulation nor distress nor bodily ailments nor sicknesses nor germs can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why would Paul write that? Why would God want us to know that? Because we feel that. We think that. And we can become persuaded of it. And we can actually lose our assurance that God does love us and gave His life for us that I must be doing something wrong. Folks, we always do something wrong. <laughs> you are not completely like Christ yet. And can I give you a hint? You're not near. <coughs> Did you notice that when the messengers came to Him in John eleven three? 3, that they didn't say what you and I would have said to Him? We would have gone to Him and said, Lord, behold, Lazarus is sick. They don't even identify His name. The sisters wanted to remind the Lord of His loving relationship to Lazarus. And folks, that's the way we need to approach people who have sicknesses.
Now this is important that we get these three times and we're really persuaded of this because our Lord is going to do something here that is so discomforting to us. What is He going to do? Verse 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when He had heard, therefore, that He was sick, He what? He delayed coming. Now folks, why would He have come? He would have come to answer the request of Mary and Martha, right? They said, Lord, if You would have been here, You would have, you would have healed Him. But He deliberately delayed And folks, when we read that and we think about that, we need to understand all the times that we have asked the Lord for something that the Scripture says is a promise or a declaration of who God is and God did not answer it immediately. He did not come to you to carry out the fulfillment of that promise at that point. Have you ever prayed for things and God delayed? When I first got saved, it just seemed like, you know, every time I prayed something, God answered it immediately. I look back sometimes and call those the glory days. They actually weren't the glory days, but it was marvelous times. But Lord, as you mature, God wants to teach you more and more, and He wants your faith strengthened. And whatever you may think about this delay, that delay was a manifestation of His love to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. We need to see God's delays not for the delay to trouble us, not for the delay to shake us, but we need to see the delay as an expression of His love to us. And folks, now you understand why the Holy Spirit writes down three times that Jesus loved them. Because if it had not been written that way, you would have wondered. You might have said, this isn't very loving of God to do this. And folks, what he says to those messengers <coughs> is a loving answer to their request. 
Lord, behold, he who you love is sick. This is what he tells the messengers. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So folks, if you were the messenger and you heard that, you would turn around and carry that message back to Mary and Martha, would you not? Would you have still delivered the message that when you got back, you find out that Lazarus is dead? Folks, when Jesus told them this sickness is not unto death, Lazarus had already died. How do you think Mary and Martha would have responded to that message? What it has seemed to you as being mean. What it has seemed to you as if they were joking that Jesus might be playing games with you. He's dead. And by the time Jesus got there, and it was only a couple of miles, by the time Jesus got there, He had been dead how many days? Four days. What it had thrown you into a theological spin. Jesus' response to the messengers was a response of love. And that response of love to the messengers was intended to be a comfort for Martha and Mary The only reason why it wasn't is because they didn't understand it yet. And folks, that's what the circumstances of life do for us. They carry us from a certain measure of theological understanding and belief to a trial of faith to a greater strengthening of that faith and understanding of who God is. Jesus knew that Lazarus was dead. The messengers did not. The disciples did not. And folks, I want to warn you and me because we've all done this. That when God providentially delays, we actually can get a rebellious spirit about it. We can actually start demanding things of God. 
telling God how He should do things and why didn't He do this? And Am I right with you? And if I am right with you, then you're, you're not being right with me. You're not being loving. But He was loving, was He not? Is God just being cruel with me? I don't know if you've ever thought that. I have thought that. I've actually prayed to God and said, God, I know I should not be thinking and feeling this way, but it just seems like that this delay is cruel. Why would you be doing this? And of course, like in the book of Psalms, you just turn around and you confess to Him and say, Lord, I will believe to see Your goodness in the land of the living. But it's there our fallen flesh is speaking and motivating us and moving our desires in this fashion. Why the providential delay? I've already hinted at this. To reveal His glory, verse 4. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, for God's light to be seen, and in His light for us to see Him. It is the self-disclosure of God the Father and a confirmation that Jesus Christ is who He said He is. That God the Father would be glorified, but God the Father would be glorified in the Son of God being glorified. Right before their eyes. And folks, I do think that Mary and Martha really battled with this. And why do I think that? <clears throat> I think they battled with it like Abraham battled when God told him to go offer up Isaac, his only begotten son, the son of the promise, up for sacrifice. I think he wrestled in his soul, and I think in his soul he came to the conclusion, well... If this is who God is, and this is what God's telling me to do, and by the way, He's not going to tell you to do that. This is what God's telling Abraham to do. How do you reconcile those two different theological statements about God? I'll tell you how you reconcile it. He is resurrection and life. That if Isaac dies and he's the promised seed, then what must God do? He's got to raise him from the dead. That's what Abraham came to. Or here's Mary and Martha. <coughs> Lazarus is dead. The messengers say this sickness is not unto death. But for the glory of God, how do you reconcile that? I don't think they ever really did reconcile it other than they just decided that they were going to believe who He said that He is. And that Lord, if You would have been here, He would not have what? He would not have died. I don't really understand all this and folks, circumstances in life come and you're not going to understand them all either. No matter how brainy you think you are. 
This was all a love in order to show us God. Now folks, what makes this raising from the dead even more miraculous is that when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, that raising happened pretty much immediately after she died. The death was confirmed. People knew it because they laughed him to what? They knew that she was dead. But he raised her. The thing that makes this chapter different than the other one is that there had been some interval between the time the widow's young man died and being carried out to the tomb. Now they didn't have all that we have today. Pretty much when a person died, they immediately began preparing that body for death in order to get it into the grave because in the heat and the humidity and all that of the Middle East, it would quickly start what? Decomposing. But what makes this so amazing is that Lazarus had been dead how many days? Four days. In other words, the bodily corruption had already begun and was well along the way. What he wants us to see in the upcoming weeks is that the aim of Jesus Christ from the beginning of Genesis to the beginning of the New Covenant is to make the pre-existent glory of God visible in our earthly existence through the body of Jesus of Nazareth. To see Jesus Christ, the man, God in human flesh, to see Him is to see the invisible God. And folks, we know... What is the answer to providential delays? I'll say it again so that we'll walk away. It is not that God doesn't love you. It's that God is loving you. And in that love, He wants you to behold and know more of Him that you would never come to see any other way. Do you believe that? Folks, if you believe that, it will sustain you in your bodily infirmities. And it will sustain you upon your deathbed. And it will sustain you in circumstances of life that you don't understand.
Was God the Father glorified when Lazarus rose? Yeah. Was Christ glorified when Lazarus rose? And folks, that act of resurrection from the one who said, he didn't say God is resurrection and life. He said, I am resurrection and life. The greatest glorification of Christ will come in His bodily resurrection from the dead. This sickness in Lazarus' life did not end in his death. Now think, he had to end up dying twice. Aren't you glad we don't have to do that? But it did not end in his death because he was restored to life. His spirit came back into him. But this event which is so glorious, isn't it, believer? It is so magnificent, we almost can't believe it. This event sealed His death. It sealed it. Any lack of determination that the religious Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians had in Jerusalem about putting Him to death was dispelled after this. It gave confirmation to the religious authorities that they really had to kill him. Isn't it amazing how such a miraculous event can do one thing in a lost person and do another thing in a believer? Lazarus was restored to life. You agree with that? And the end result was Jesus' death. <laughs> Lazarus lives as a result of Jesus' dying. Folks, Jesus knew this. He knew that if He raised Him from the dead, it would confirm His crucifixion. And He still did the Father's will. It's amazing. And folks, you too, who do not know the Lord, are dead. And the only way you can live is if he died. Lazarus lives, and as a result, he what? He died. If we're to live, he has to die and be raised again. Your good work will never do it. Your being kind to others will never do it. You're giving all your money away. We'll never do it. 
you living a more perfect life than someone else or your parents or your grandparents or whoever ain't going to do it. Life only comes by death. And that's exactly what Paul understood in 2 Corinthians about ministry. I die so that the Corinthians, you may what? You may live. Christ died so that we may live. Lazarus lives and as a result, Jesus will what? He will die. Do you have the life of Christ inside of you? Has the Word come to you and generated life in your soul? May God grant it. And brethren, as believing people, you should walk away amazed. Though you've read it a hundred times, His Word always lives. And may the entrance of these words give light. Let's pray.